0: Welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales. This week we're sponsored by Harbro, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition. On this week's podcast, we skip over to USA for another episode looking at modern livestock operations. I'm delighted to have back one of our regular contributors, Dr. Bob Hoke. Bob, welcome back. It's been a while.
1: Well, I think it's great. Of course, I'm not, I'm not the main feature today, but it's always good to be with you and and talk about our industry and our history of our
0: industry. This week we're joined by uh, somebody you know quite well, an extremely busy man called Craig Uden, who not only runs one of the largest feedlots in USA, the DAR feedlot in the Platte River Valley in Nebraska, but Craig is also a past president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, as well as running a large breeding cow operation in the same region. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us, Craig. Thank you, Andy. And if we can start with the feedlot, uh, you started the Dar feedlot, I believe, in the 1980s. What was your background before that, and, and did you do this all by yourself?
2: Well, as a college student, actually, that interned out here for one of the one of the partners in the feedlot. Uh, I grew up on a diversified farming operation in eastern Nebraska, and we fed cattle back there, and we we're fairly large at that period of time when i was a, a young man so when i went to college uh, there wasn't a lot of opportunity that was kind of what we call the the tough 80s around here and and so i interned out here and they were buying this piece of property and so i just basically stayed after my internship i went back to school for a semester and then came back and and we just started it from ground up and it it was a dream of about uh, six local farmers that wanted to pool their resources. Instead of all feeding their cattle at home, they wanted to uh, uh, put them together and have one place to uh, market their cattle instead of uh, at at home. So that's kind of how this thing got started in 1982. And I came as an intern
0: in 82 and then came back full time in 83. Okay. began I think with about fifteen hundred animals, and so they would have been jointly owned by by these uh, this, this small nucleus group.
2: Uh, most of them were at that time. and and this was a rundown facility that had actually uh, went into foreclosure. so they'd bought in that uh, this property and and it had a lot of potential, and they had a lot of dreams, and I did too. So we started at that, and uh, in order to grow it, uh, limited resources. They fed what they could feed, and then I, uh, my charge was to go find new customers. So that's kind of the way we went about it. And uh, at that time, the industry was just poised to go into the commercial cattle feeding industry as we know it today. Uh, today it's more of a mature business, but it was really back in its youth, back in the early 80s, and yep. times were tough. But uh, that's how we got started, and I had to go find my first customers, and we just grew with the uh, – with the businesses. We found more people.
1: Could I, yeah, one thing, uh, uh, can I put that in respect? We've talked about that before. When Craig was starting that, and he said that it was a tough time. It was a really tough time. We we have discussed that. I mean, interest rates were going up. Like his, his uh, working capital would have been up 18, 20, even sometimes yeah. over 20%. And, sure. and land prices, a lot of people were underwater on land. So he actually would have bought the land at a better time. But people that bought land on the 70s were, it was tough, tough, tough. So, I mean, they got in the business right at a very tough time. So, I mean, you got to give them kudos for that.
0: Sure, sure. I, I understand how that was back then. But also, you're in the business at the beginning of it. So, you're one of the pioneers into this business and uh, and you grew with that. And uh, can I ask, um, Craig, why did you choose this particular region? What are the conditions like there? And what's your average rainfall compared to, you know, to rent about?
2: Well, as I said, I grew up on an operation east of here. And that that, that entity in the, in the eastern part of, the, of Nebraska uh, was more humid. Out here we had the drier climate. Uh, the opportunity out here was immense because there was, there was a lot of acres. And uh, irrigation was uh, some of the irrigation that was developed in the 30s and 40s. Canal irrigation really made this area pop because there was a lot of... Uh, dry land back in the 30s and 40s but with irrigation there was plenty available feed Uh, there's a river that runs right between our two locations there's an interstate system and uh, there was packing plants out here as well so there was a golden opportunity it had everything you needed to be in the cattle business it had feed water and uh, processing uh, right wrapped in one so our average rainfall out here was about a a third less, it's about 20 inches of moisture a year, and uh, we're closer to the cattle and closer to the processing. So it was an ideal location and remains that way today. This is one of the larger uh, cattle feeding, uh, more productive counties in the United States for uh, for agricultural production.
0: Sure, and, and I suppose having the river down there, you'd get a little bit of humidity and sort of a, maybe a mist coming over the, the animals there as well rather than it being too hot.
2: Not necessarily. We just had a drier climate, so cattle, when they get fat, don't always like the humid weather and and the extra heat. We'd be typically a little shorter growing season, but uh, uh, very adequate for this region, so we... uh, We didn't have a lot of issues out here and still don't today. There's been more uh, center pivot irrigation systems, which has created a little more humidity and there's more crops grown. With the increase of yields, there is more humidity today than there used to be, but it's still very adequate. Uh, Something that the Eastern part of the United States would face greatly. Uh, when you get to the west, it's more arid, so it's really nice for cattle production out west, but then they lack some of the rainfall. So it, we're kind of right in the
0: heart of the cattle feeding country. Sure. And and you grew the operation. Uh, I'm going to ask you how you grew the operation. And uh, now runs, I believe, 45,000 head of feeding cattle. Is that about right? It's a staggering figure.
2: Yeah, that is about right. It's, it's like eating an elephant one bite at a time as yeah. we got more customers and more demand. Uh, there were some other operations, as, as we were speaking earlier about, the 80s were tough. So I had rent some pens from other locations, and then once we were stable enough, we we continued to add capacity to these facilities. Our last major expansion was in the 2005-06 uh, range uh, when we bought another facility and then built onto it uh, up through 2010. And uh, uh, we're trying to balance our resources out of here as far as having adequate labor, not getting too big, because we still do have winter weather that we have to take care of the cattle. Uh, making sure we have plenty of resources to go with our feed ingredients coming in, and also our, our affluent, our manure, and water management going out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we're, we're not a megalot that has 100,000 in one spot. We are 45,000
0: in two locations. Okay, and how, how much area would that cover? Just just out of interest, I have no idea <laughs> how much much uh, ground
2: it that needs. It, it, well, we we figure it in acres. Uh, it would take about a section of land, which would be six hundred and forty acres, and I believe that 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 would be about where where the cattle pens would be.
0: Yeah, we're okay working in acres. Uh, six hundred and forty acres. That's probably double the size of the average family farm in UK so that's a hell of an area and for our UK listeners I should explain that the the cattle pens of course are outdoors, I mean they've got no roof over their head and in England, the average rainfall is about 30 inches. In Scotland, that goes mm-hmm. up to 60 inches. And in the West, probably over 100. Uh, I'm not sure an operation like this would uh, would work in Scotland. <laughs> Poor buggers would need they'd need fins, I think. <laughs> what um what, what size of pens uh, are we looking at, uh, Craig? How, how many, I guess it would vary by age group, would it? What size of, of, of pens would these cattle be in? Well,
2: our, our average uh, size of a pen would be about 300 square feet per animal. And how many animals in a pen? Well, it varies in size. And uh, part of the reason that is uh, we have different size customers that feed more or less cattle. Um, but we will range in, in a 60-head pen up to basically a 200-size pen. We have a lot of 120s. And, and the reason for that is we like to sort cattle as well. So if a, if an individual operator would send me 500 head, we might sort those cattle at least four different ways, sure. and that would give different marketing time frames for that that individual to market his cattle. So we have to have that flexibility in the commercial uh, aspect because we do not know exactly how many cattle uh, an individual will be sending in. So we have to uh, consequently be prepared to uh, fill the pens, and, and we don't want to overfill them. We don't want underfill them. We want to try to right size them for efficiency
0: does that stay stable um the amount of animals that are in there does it sort of go up seasonally or down seasonally or or as soon as the pens are empty are you ready for the next ones coming straight in
2: well we we try to stay as full as as we can year round now that typically which we've had non-typical years lately Mm. but typically uh, we will be feeding more cattle from say uh september october through may and june and then july august is is, uh, a time where we usually have less cattle a lot of that is in our region there's a lot more spring born cattle that will be divided in half and half of those cattle will go on feed as a calf fed that'd be coming off the mother and half of them will be weaned and then ran over as what we'd call a yearling so some of the cattle will be going on feed as early as, say, six, seven months of age, and some of them will come back in and go on feed as 11 to 13 months of age. And so, but that creates a natural hole. Now, the United States has been anything other than normal lately because we're about 60% in drought right now. So people are uh, either short of water or grass pasture. And so some of those cattle are having to move back into the system quicker than what people would normally have happen.
0: And we'll talk about some of the other factors that affect a, 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 an industry sure. like yours, and there's a lot of them. And you're right with regarding to the weather. I live in France, and we've had a, a drought for three or four months, and all of a sudden we've had rain for for you know for four weeks solid. So I think there's something going on definitely with the weather. Uh, it's it's my understanding that the U.S. feedlots are highly regulated in terms of your environmental impact. Uh, Craig, can you can you tell us a bit more about that?
2: well there's national guidelines and then there's state guidelines and a lot of times the state guidelines will be equivalent or more stringent than the federal guidelines in our case we work with the nebraska department of environmental quality we call it uh, deq and those people uh, uh, will come out and we have test wells where we live it is in the in the river valley so we do not want leaching into the soil so we have Shallow test wells to make sure they sample those two to four times a year and they are locked and they are the only one with the key. So they come in and they sample them to make sure you're not leaching into the groundwater sure. within your effluent. We have to maintain all water, rainwater, snow pack and any, any anything like that. We have to contain all we produce on these operations and we use holding ponds to hold them. And uh, we also have to do that with our feed products, whether it be hay or corn silage, corn, any runoff off these facilities have to be contained. And uh, what we've done in the past, uh, we've got natural clay liners that uh, don't let the, uh, the storage ponds uh, leach into the soil. And we've, uh, we also have uh, a couple ponds that are, have what they call a synthetic liner. Just as an extra precautionary, uh, in those ponds, so that we don't have any groundwater leaching, and we don't, have, and we can contain all of our water that is produced. And we have to have this built in such a manner that it will sustain a five to six inch rain. So, in our wisdom, we we've, we've tried to build everything for a ten inch rain,
0: just because
2: Good. we know the laws change, and uh, we want to be ahead of the curve. Not doing the minimum, we want to do the maximum.
1: Yeah. And I've been to Darabi quite a few times. It's been a few years, but I've been. There. I used to be there quite often. And uh, I mean, whenever you talk about how those cattle are and that whole setup, I mean, they're mounded on the fence lines, and there's a mound down the center, and then there's drainage in between. And those cattle can get up on high spots. Uh, there's a there's pads, uh, you know, hard pads where they eat. I mean, those cattle live pretty well. They're outside. You know, we talked about them being outside, but it, it's, it's really well managed. They always can get up on dry ground, and it, it's really pretty darn nice.
2: Like I said earlier, we live in a more little more arid country. If you move to the eastern part of the Nebraska, even, and eastern United States, we do see more barns being built to house cattle. And, uh they get more humidity and more rainfall and probably a little tougher winters than we get. So uh, as an industry,
0: we see different challenges within regions of the United States. I'm sure you do. And just for our listener, they'd be on soil beds, wouldn't they? They wouldn't be concrete um, standing no. underneath the cattle, but obviously there'll be concrete standing down the middle where your feed passages are. And-
2: I yeah, so. we, we're the cattle stand to eat, and, and usually that's where they're going to uh, relieve themselves. That's where we <laughs> want to be able to clean that up sure. on a constant basis. But, um, yeah, we we work at it every day that we can to make these cattle as comfortable as we can, because if they're not comfortable and they're not performing, if they're
0: not performing, somebody's going to go somewhere else. So. Sure. Sure. Uh, and uh, brief question, steers and heifers, do you, do you run equally, or is it, are you mainly a steer outfit, or uh, is there a difference?
2: Well, you know, in the United States, between 30 and 37 percent. It's usually on feed, would be a heifer. And that's just normal for the amount of heifers that are kept in, uh, in the breeding cycle. So sure. it's always going to about, be about two-thirds steers and heifers. Mm-hmm. In this facility what a lot of people will do will put their steer calves on feed and they will carry their heifers over so they can select replacements and then they'll carry them over and make those what i talked about earlier as a yearling and then they'll come back in off of grass we see a more of a 50 50 balance of steers and heifers into the fall and then from uh, october to maybe may uh, it starts generating more steers so we'll have uh, Probably about 75% steers uh, on feed right now, but then that'll change this fall again, and then when those cattle go out, then more steers will come in. That's just kind of the natural cycle of how the U.S. works.
0: And most of the cattle in the feedlot would be on retained ownerships. Uh, Craig, does Dar own any of the cattle? Do you own any any of them? I own cattle personally as a customer. My partners
2: do as well. Uh, retained ownership was a big thing in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. Actually, I still have some of my very, very first customers back in 83, 4, 5 that I've got. And they're still retaining ownership. But as the industry matures and changes and, and, and all industries evolve, uh, we see more. Uh, we do see some investment feeders. But most of our producers are, are, are farmers or ag people that... Uh, contract with us to feed their cattle. Uh, they raise them and then they feed them or they retain ownership off of ranches. Then we have people that will go out and buy cattle from farmers and ranchers and they will put them on feed and feed, finish those cattle out as well. It, it's a little bit of everything. Okay. And that's just kind of how the industry has evolved as it's gotten larger. It takes more capital and more dollars. And and uh, it's pretty big business. So risk tolerance is something Mm-hmm. That some of the and the available capital for some of the younger folks has has been a little more challenging to
0: get. Sure. And can I ask uh, who some of these investors would be? I'm not asking for names. But what sort of type of, of company? Is this just a, a general financial investment in, into a feedlot, or are they specific?
2: No, uh... no, they'd be all they'd be all ag people. Uh-huh. They might they they might have a uh, they might be in the ag business. They uh, or be very diversified. you got your ranchers and your farmers, and you got some people that might be owning an implement dealership. Uh, they, they own farms, but they own implement dealerships, and, and they're very diversified in their ag portfolio. But everybody in this operation is somehow tied back to the cattle business. I, I do not have, like, investor feeders where they pool a bunch of money and just go buy cattle. Um, some people do, but we're not one of those facilities because – I I always like to educate, so I'm I'm, I'm always keeping people apprised of what's changing in the industry and how how they need to be looking at changing their operations, what's new and innovative and what's happening, uh, what's the trends. Uh, I've really stayed very, very, very agricultural tied to to ag producers. Uh Uh-huh.
0: And what sort of returns would the investors be looking at then, if you don't mind me asking that? You know, I don't want to delve into the finances, and I guess your input costs will be moving all the time, and the price of beef would be moving as well. I mean, what sort of returns would an investor be looking at? Is this this somewhere we should be putting money?
2: Well, um, and and that's been part of the challenge, as the industry's matured. The the rate rate of return's gotten smaller, so more numbers have been, uh, some of the big, big, outfits look for maybe a little less return we're trying to return somewhere around 50 to 65 70 dollars if we can or somewhere in the neighborhood of that uh three to four percent right now um okay. mm-hmm. uh, okay. and that's that's fairly small we there, there's times you can get more and there's times you actually lose 10 20 percent too but sure. uh that's it's, it's not for the faint of heart the cattle feeding business anymore because it moves pretty drastically uh, we do have the Chicago Board of Trade to uh, do some risk protection that is uh, uh, unique to the United States that uh, allows people to lay off risk, whether they want to take a position to uh, protect against corn going up, which we've seen corn uh, double, and uh, or whether that or, or the price of the cattle, if it gets to a level where they think they can lock in a nice return, a decent return, they can lay those cattle off. Uh, with
0: risk protection. I wouldn't want to be the underwriter on that one. And can you give me, if you don't mind, the sort of indication of the turnover of a setup by this size? I mean, and, and how are, the, how are the, the, the people charged by the head or by the pound or by the week? I'm not quite sure how the, how the, the, the pennies work.
2: Well, we buy, when we buy the feed, we, we've got the cost in the feed. And so uh, we figure a process cost of the feed, and then we charge them a yardage, uh, uh, a fee per head per day. Uh-huh. And that's where we have to generate in order to uh, pay all of our health and our our labor and our our fixed costs and uh, repairs and all that stuff. And uh, so we're charging uh, basically about thirty-five cents a day okay. per head. So yeah.
0: that's how we survive.
2: Gives us an indication.
0: Plus the feed, of course. Yeah, that gives us an indication. Yeah, but, that's, but, that's yeah,
2: feed, feed, and medical. Uh, insurance, things like that are, are basically, uh, going to run through the program.
0: Can I ask where you, the cattle come from? There must be a lot of, you know, of regular suppliers. I mean, how do they, do they source this, this many, this many head? You got to remember, I live in Nebraska. <laughs> I'm in the <laughs> center
2: part of the cow. Um, a well-known fact around here is the three largest cattle, cow-calf operating counties in the United States, basically in the world, um, are in Nebraska, and that would be Cherry and and Holt and and Custer County. And between those three, there's I think there's 350,000 cows in that uh, those three counties. And our counties are not very large, but uh, uh, so you, we we source a lot of cattle out of Nebraska, and we we basically pull cattle from many different parts of the United States. Uh, and that part of the reason that is is like I said earlier, we are more of a springtime calving and uh, some of the other regions, say in the west in California or the south, there will be more of a fall calf. And in order to find cattle for certain times of the year, we will be looking in those regions. Okay, yeah. So cattle will travel 1,500 miles from California to get into here. And okay. uh, we don't see a lot of cattle coming out of the southeast, but we do see some. We, it's It's not that hard when there's you know, 33 million mama cows in the United States to find
0: enough to f- to fill this location. <laughs>
2: it's There's quite a few cows around, so...
0: Uh... That's mind-boggling figures to to us on the little island here in the United Kingdom. And um, what breeds is best suited to this operation? Obviously, Angus is...
2: We see a lot of Angus cattle. Uh, Nebraska's had a lot of red Angus cattle and black Angus cattle. Uh, had a tremendous big hereford base to start with uh, 40 50 years ago and some went black some went red and that's kind of how a lot of it stayed so we see a lot of that we see a lot of continental influence moving back in particularly in the ranching community we're starting to see a little bit more of that uh, come into place uh, due to the fact that people are looking for a little more weight if they're going to be selling their calves or their yearlings so you're they're adding a little bit of continental influence, and that continental would be, oh, probably pushed more towards the Stematol, and There would be some Galve and, and uh, things like that, but you still have a tremendous Angus base breed, and and they've done a great job of marketing the the certified Angus beef people, and and consequently, uh, uh, consumers are pushing. The retailers, retailers are pushing the packers, and the packers are pushing it back down to us. That uh, cattle need to be more of a dark eyed animal than than some of the multicolored animals we've seen in the past. So that's that's one thing we
0: have been seeing, and it's it's getting
2: more pronounced every year. It seems like
0: it's something we've discussed, and Bob and I have discussed on on this podcast and before that the the way that all the, the cattle are going black in, in the U.S. because of the of the CAB, and that's uh, yeah, that's an interesting subject in itself. We probably don't want to go down that route because it gets a little <laughs> bit political.
2: Yes, it does.
0: <laughs> and there'd be cattle coming in and out all the time, I suppose, at Darn. How many how many animals come in and out every day? Do, you, do, you, do they come by truck, by road? <laughs> must be highly no, organi- they... organized logistics of some sort.
2: Well, we take it for granted, but yes, it's pretty highly uh, organized. Uh, for example, today we... we we will ship out somewhere around three, four hundred a day, and we'll get about four hundred in a day. And uh, it varies on. It, it, that's a balancing act as well. Yeah. Uh, this this operation, and uh, if you take out Sundays, so you're, you're and a few Saturdays, say three hundred, uh, three hundred uh, days a year, and this thing will turn a uh, <coughs> little over two times, say hundred hundred thousand head a year out of here. That's mm-hmm. got to be somewhere in that 300 and some head on average mm-hmm. day in, day out. Now that doesn't always happen that way because some days we might ship a thousand. Some days we might receive a thousand
0: uh-huh. <laughs> and some
2: days we don't have any coming in and no, nothing going out. But uh, yeah, it's highly organized takes a pretty good staff to make sure we got cattle coming in and cattle going out. And we, uh, this operation is pretty unique to a lot uh, Everything has an origin place that they come from, and those cattle have to stay separate from other cattle, and then they get uh, an electronic ear tag, and those cattle are then sourced to that, and that origin tells us wh- who bought the cattle or who owns the cattle, uh, what state they came from, and then we, we have to fill out what we call an end sheet, which gives all the detailed information, what they weigh, what they cost, what they shrink, is there any issue with the cattle what kind of cattle are they uh how will they perform and then when they go out uh, we've got cameras so we double count everything out and then the electronics will record as we go up to shoot so that we know that we have the right cattle going to the right location so we we track everything a, immensely
0: at this operation so you're tracking them when they're coming in of course and i mean obviously We've got to look at we, health health issues. I mean, there will be animals coming in from everywhere, and you'll know where they came from, I know, but, I mean, with cattle coming in you know, from different locations, you must be very stringent in uh, in monitoring uh, cattle coming in or uh, monitoring health problems they could bring in, or it could be catastrophic for the whole operation, surely. Well, like
2: I said earlier, we do a lot of educating, so people that we're educating are some of our people we're sourcing cattle from. And uh, so we're consequently... Uh, pushing those folks to be better managers before the cattle get in for a better experience and a, and a, and a more uh, targeted in response of those cattle once they go out. And consequently, that means herd management, uh, health management, uh, feed management, uh, time of shipping, don't ship if it's a storm, uh, these type of things that we like to coordinate. And that can be what we'd call an order buyer that purchased cattle for us or a rancher that's sending us cattle. So we're in constant contact before the cattle are coming in while they're on the road. And then after they get here, we give them a call and tell them how everything went. But because uh, we can, we're, we're trying to eliminate problems. And, and part of that traceability or that uh, electronic tag is giving us that information. And it's going to give us uh all the carcass information as well as all the health information on that particular animal. And if we have too many issues, then we won't be going back to that supplier in the near future. Uh, I will give them a chance or two, but then we we move on to the next person because there's plenty of good producers out there, and we just need to make sure we find the ones that create less headache for for ourselves and and deliver the product that the the consumers are actually wanting to receive. Bob, you want to come in here?
1: I was just going to mention and with the way the modern feedlots are tracked like like, uh, DAR does. I mean, these folks that do not manage their cattle correctly and if they come in and they have health problems and stuff, I mean, Craig is not going to go back and buy those cattle uh, just flat out. And I mean, the price of those cattle are just going to go down and down and down. I I mean, it's, it's kind of a, they either manage it correctly or they go out of business. I mean, because people will find them out really quickly and and they just won't buy them or they will buy them at such a discounted price that there's no way you can make it economically viable and, and so economics is a pretty powerful teacher in the end uh, and so i think that's a something we need to keep in mind and, and economics takes care of you know these really uh producers that are not taking care of business Economics usually will take care of them, and uh, because people like Craig will not go back to them, and it's uh, thats a good thing. Uh, we don't need need that.
2: This cattle feeding is a very competitive sport. We might say it's—we uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when the dollars are involved, you got to make sure everything. Happens right. There's not a lot of chances for lots of mistakes. Now we we always have to deal with the weather, and we understand that. But uh, when times get tough, we need to know how to manage through that. We got to have the right cattle to to get through that. Because yeah. you know, when we say we were looking for say a five ten percent return on investment, um, poor health will eliminate that ten percent and maybe make it from ten percent profit to ten percent loss in a hurry. Because if they they're not performing and and we just don't want to take those chances anymore and that's that's part of the reason that uh, uh, this industry has gotten a little bit more mature because people are 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 trying to hone in on that and uh, there's just not a lot of uh, room for living the old west island and, and taking their chances anymore it's it's more targeted all the time and it has to be because you're producing food for
0: for the public Sure. Sure. When I was a kid growing up, my father we used to have five hundred Frisian steers in all undercover and and um, and fattening, and then you get pneumonia, you could come in there in a boat, and, and, about and it, would, yeah. uh, it would pretty much wipe your profits out. Yes, and then some. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to move on to a slightly controversial subject. Uh, growth promotants such as hormones are frowned on in the UK, Well, although we used them back in the day. They're banned from use here now. Uh, do you still use those at DAR? and um, Craig, And what are your thoughts on, on their use?
2: Well, I'm still a believer that there's no data out there that shows that there's any problems with using them. When you look at the difference of a, uh, a non-hormonal treated animal versus a one that has had an implant, mammograms, uh, uh, estradiol still virtually the same. So, but we understand that we're satisfying the consumer. So, facility, we run different programs and we have uh, NHTC, no hormone one treated cattle, and we have full technology cattle where uh, those proven practices that uh, absolutely have uh, no rhyme or reason not to use, but maybe has a Stigma in certain locations, such as uh, your area, that uh, in order to gain market access, there we're, we're, we're running programs as well. So, about a third of our cattle are uh, NHTC, and about two thirds of them are what we like to call full uh, technical cattle.
1: Those so NHTC cattle be headed for Europe and Britain?
2: Some of those cattle will be headed to Europe, pieces of them, and that's the interesting thing about the export market is not everybody likes to eat the same things. So mm-hmm. there, there's, there's parts of them that will stay in the U.S., and there's parts of them that will go to uh, other countries, and the same thing with the technology cattle. So we've got a growing appetite for beef worldwide, so there's a need for all, all types, and I think there's room for all players. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just whether or not it's efficient or not. Uh, genetics uh, are starting to catch up a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I, Bob and I will argue on this once in a while. and I'll argue with a lot of the, my, my breeders out there that uh, we haven't done enough in, in advanced uh, genomics to, to get to where we need to be as far as uh, efficient growth in these cattle. To where we, we can stand on our own and eliminate some of the other issues, but, but with that's for another day too, but we, we do, we work on both avenues and, and we've got a market for both. So yes, we've, we've got cattle that are pieces of them that would be going to different, uh, different countries, whether it be non-hormone-traded or or technology cattle. Sure.
0: I was going to go on to the export side of it to when, when I talk to you about to you about when you've got your um, National uh, Cattlemen's Association heart on. But let's just stick with DAR for a minute. And uh, I can hear people asking this question uh, about feeding these animals. And, and DA will buy in local feed. How much forage and grain does it take to feed that <laughs> lot? I mean...
2: Well, we, we're going to put up about 70,000 ton of silage. We're,
0: we're going to put up about, about
2: 126,000, 130,000 ton of, of corn. And then we're going to purchase somewhere in the neighborhood of seventy five to 85,000 ton of distiller's grain, which is manufactured from the corn. It's a byproduct, and that's the only byproduct we feed at this location. The aftermath of ethanol production, which adds some protein uh, back into the ration, and then the, the alfalfa hay or, or hay type products would be also equivalent to about seventy thousand ton of, of, of hay. So wow. it takes it takes a pretty good charge of feed in order to run this operation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can say that again. I've just done a quick total up, and I get it somewhere in the region of 350,000 tonne of feed uh, going through the feed lot each year. Um, in Scotland, they feed a lot of brewer's grain, we call it, that so comes from the whiskey distilleries. And, and Bob, you did some work in the research of feeding uh, by-products of all sorts, and uh, Craig said they don't use, but I mean, you, you were involved in this. I mean, they use everything, don't they, somewhere?
1: That that's one thing about the cattle industry is as we can use so many byproducts and I mean we always thinking of corn but I I was in in the New England which wouldn't make a small county in in Nebraska in terms of the cattle cattle industry but we had cattle feeders there and for them to make it work I mean we've had I had guys that feed potatoes and bakery waste and I mean I even had one guy that hauled uh, truckloads of kitty waste from Hershey. And blueberry waste, I'd have somebody call me, i have two truckloads of blueberry waste, what could I do with it? You know, and pasta, and I mean, it's amazing what what we can produce a a high-quality protein out of so many byproducts. It's it's really a wonderful thing, and we're talking about landfilling all that, and here we can turn it into great protein for people, and and we really need to appreciate what, what a wonderful, that rumen. What, what a wonderful job you can do in taking all these byproducts.
0: Brilliant. And, uh, Craig, going back to, to the feed, you say you don't feed the byproducts, but uh, yeah, where does your feed come from? I mean, how far away, local stuff? Obviously, food miles or the distance it's going to travel is going to have an impact on what it costs.
2: Well, most of the corn production is going to be in this county. Um, all the silage and, and, and 75% of all the hay will come out of, uh, probably a three-county area. And uh, corn, this, this county produces 45 million bushel of corn. So okay. um, we're, we're just one of many. But we, we're, we're in a big grain belt here, a uh, very productive area. And we have irrigation. That's a key. Uh, that's somewhat of our drought mitigator um, mm. when we get into tough times and, and people can produce here. Now, you don't have to go real far. Uh, south or, or north, and it, it isn't as, n- as much irrigation. But we're really in a breadbasket here for irrigation so we can produce. And, again, that's real key why we built this place here in the first place is the water. Nebraska is <laughs> known for water. Uh, Nebraska's water is managed extremely well. And, consequently, uh, uh, there's lots of regulations on that, how much they can use. But technology has allowed them to produce using less water and being more precision managed. So uh, the availability of feedstuffs here is is really critical of how we grew and and we kind of grew as the the region grew.
0: Sure. And and, uh, obviously this all, uh, for our UK listener, of course, we're not talking uh, uh, wheat and barley here. We're talking maize corn. And all that stuff comes in in from harvest. So you must have a, Mm -hmm. a, a, a few weeks where the, those uh, 120,000 tons of corn will all come in at once a I minute mean, again, and it'll just be a do. nightmare.
2: Well, it's very well organized. As you grow with it, you learn to use technology there as well. So um, a lot of these guys have become very big operators in, in the grain side of things. Again, the capital, uh, we have lots of farmers that will farm seven to 10,000 acres of, of grain. And so they have the combines and the trucks and to get it in. Uh our our throughput is what has always uh, been some challenges, but we've addressed those and and we put it up. Uh, uh, we we can put up about two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand bushels a day because we have a window on this what we call high moisture corn, which is higher moisture than what you can store in a bin or or, or in ground storage. Uh-huh. And we put that in at about twenty seven twenty eight and a half percent moisture. Uh-huh and we, we've got about a three-week window in order to harvest it. And we work with our farmers to uh, purchase this corn. Uh, so they're kind of planting their corn in accordance to what needs to come at the first part of the three weeks and what needs to come at the end of the three weeks to, to maintain the moisture and to fit our, our bidding process. But uh, we get it in in a hurry. Uh, we use technology, we use electronic ear tag again, in the trucks and as they pass through our scale it records the farm and uh, who the producer is and what contract this uh, this load of corn is and uh, then the the truck is weighed and sampled and then it it's on and it it dumps on a flat storage and, and is scooped up by large equipment and uh processed through uh, a series of roller mills and then packed into a large uh, ground pit and uh sealed and and it stays uh stays of its moisture and stays in great condition until we until we feed it out
1: first time i came west was at about 74 or something on a junior charlotte leadership conference and we went to one of these large feedlots and to see a mound of silage when you're from I'm from the east, and then if you go to your part of the world, it's, it's really something to see. I mean, these are big, big mounds of silage, and just and the, you know, the packing is, and the, the machinery on top of it looks pretty small. It's, it's very impressive. They put it up so fast, and has to be packed hard, and it's really, really impressive how, how this feed gets put up, and just the scale of it is it, pretty astounding
0: of course and harvest the world over is a is a race against time isn't it uh, i'm on this podcast we're sponsored by harbro feeds in uh north of scotland and uh, i'm just wondering uh, david mckenzie would fall off his chair if you phoned him and said right can i get 120,000 tons of cattle feed and, uh, and by the way can you deliver it in a in a three-week window it uh, must be a logistical nightmare
2: we do have a lot of people from town even come out and we've got kind of a, well, this year it's going to actually be, uh, it's going to be corn. But normally it was in hay and people would go out there and park their vehicle and just watch for an hour or two. And uh, <laughs> it is pretty amazing to my ranchers that come in and see that pile because, um, you know, where they live out in the sand hills in Nebraska, there's there's not a lot of grain production. So they see that much corn it's pretty amazing to even a lot of my customers. But uh, uh, it's a well-orchestrated uh, three weeks, I will say that. And then our harvest is done and everybody else continues to harvest on. But uh, we have to be like an elevator. Uh, we have to have that capability of, of handling that much feed. So we've had to redesign and, and re. Uh, retool our operation in order to be able to get it accomplished in three weeks.
0: Wow, incredible! And you must have one hell of a mill there to mix all that stuff as well, and some pretty hefty machinery, I would think. We're talking a heavy industry here. Can I ask again, without praying too much, to give me a rough idea of how much feed per head per day? What levels of sort of protein feed do we get per per animal?
2: We're going to feed a fairly wet ration because we use the distiller's grain, we use silage, we use high moisture corn. So we're going to try to target around 50 pounds on average. We'll have some eating more than that and some of the newer cattle eating less than that. But the goal is to get to about 50 pounds. So we have mixer trucks and uh, we have one person that uh, we, we, we call a charge box. And this this box will dump onto the truck. And it's all computerized, and, and we have a person that uh, analyzes what the cattle need, and he computes it in, and it it's all electronic. It shoots him a message of how much silage, how much wet distillers, how much corn, everything that needs to be loaded on this dump box. And he puts that in, and it, it records all that per day, per hour, per minute. It dumps on a, a mixer truck, and this mixer truck can handle about 16 tonne. And uh, consequently, uh, he has to mix that feed, and then it, the computer in the truck matches up with what the guy's loaded, and then it tells him where to go unload that feed. So we're going to be feeding about 1,100 ton out per day, <laughs> and so that takes, depending on the load sizes of the trucks, it's anywhere from 75 to 100, you know, deliveries. And we use basically six trucks between the two locations. And, and those so, are fence he, so, line
1: bunks, right? And, and these and are truck.
2: fence line bunks, yes. Mm-hmm. And then the truck will pull up and it'll say, I'm at pin such and such. And it'll say, you need to feed 1,600 pounds or 2,500 pounds to this location. If he feeds under that or over it, it records it. Uh-huh. So that the customer gets billed for what, what is to be delivered to that animal at that
0: time of the day. Of course, you're billing billing every bit of feed, so the computerization will uh, will be very key for, for this. And, and can I talk about growth rates of the animals? Do you aim just for maximum growth rate, or are there more efficient ways to feed with uh, less protein?
2: Well, we, when you get to the feedlot, and we do things, again, we try to coordinate. And, and the size of the animals coming in, I've got cattle that come in weighing 400 pounds, and I've got cattle that come in weighing 1,000 pounds. If they come in in 400 pounds in the fall off, off their mothers, we will try to, as we talked earlier about uh, having to contain all this, this affluent off of these feed yards, when we chop the silage, we will plant a cover crop such as oats barley or rye on these fields and we'll irrigate them up that way we have less erosion and we use our our water out of our facility to to get us a, a growing sustainable crop after we chop the silage we will put cattle light cattle back out there and let them cattle have time and grow naturally off of off of these grass pastures or or maybe even a cornfield that has some Uh, corn that fell off the the stalk and we'll grow those cattle and if we don't have enough we also employ some other smaller feed yards around that specialize in in a high roughage growing diet so some of those lighter cattle that might be how we're going to handle those cattle typically most of the cattle coming in here are going to be somewhere around 700 pounds to to maybe 900 pounds and those cattle are going to be pushed on through the system and our growth rate is what we're after so uh, that's changed over the years we used to do a lot more growing at this facility but since we have all these uh, other facilities around us uh, we may put those cattle in those facilities for a while just to get them set up and and less health challenged in a sure. large lot like this so that we can move those cattle on. So, sure. so we try to manage each set of cattle genetically, where they came from differently to get the maximum efficiency out of those cattle. Sure. Some requires Andy, longer growing and some of them are is quicker. So,
1: Andy, back. Could, I, could I interject something? It's, you know, we've been talking about a tremendous amount of grain and all those things, but we still have to keep in perspective that this is a forage based industry. Mm-hmm. And, and and uh craig is just on one end of it is finishing these cattle to a high palatability uh, product but uh, the majority of the feed that goes into the whole system the cow calf uh he talked about growing cattle on on uh cover crops and, and that whole thing and he's still still putting forage in the system uh, we're the uh, the whole system is the majority of it is forage by, by far yeah. And we're using product that can't be used any other way. And we have a lot of ground that agriculture ground that is only good for forage. And so, so we, we do feed to a high quality product. That's Craig's end of it. But, but the whole system is a forage based system on the whole. Uh, But we we do have this unique high quality feeding and uh, that's our, that's our niche. That's our notch. That's where we fit. but, Mm -hmm but uh, we can't overlook uh, how much forage we use how much pasture we use how much we use that just can't be value added in any other way uh-huh. corn
2: corn stalks as well
1: yeah mm-hmm. it, absolutely well, corn,
2: corn stalks is a big issue out here all this corn comes to me you have you have all the leaves and all the you have some spilled corn as far as ears that fell off the stalks and we forage all that with cows and, and and these calves as well we try to be very conscious and and sustainable as far as utilizing all not letting any of that go to waste if we can help it because it just it, it doesn't do it doesn't do the plant health and the soil health any good
0: um, we'll go on and talk about your cow operation in a minute, because obviously you do graze a lot of those corn stalks uh, with your own beasts. Um, but uh, we'll just go back to, to Dar. So it's a question that I think a lot of people are going to be asking. You must rely heavily on staff. I mean, how many staff at <laughs> Dara, Yeah, Dar. how many people would they employ there now? Um, incredible.
2: We, we employ about one per thousand, so we have about 45 on staff. That includes the girls in the office and and our people outside. We're a good employer and we we take care of our people. We don't have a lot of turnover and we don't face some of the challenges other industries do because uh, we have to have them here every day, seven days a week, holidays included, rain or shine, and bad weather and good weather. And uh, so we've, we've got a very good staff and very talented staff that we rely on real heavily. And... Because we are so technically advanced as far as uh, keeping track of stuff and, and, and we've got a lot of procedures and a lot of uh, uh, systems in place to and cross train a lot of people that uh, uh, allows us to get the job done.
0: Sure, and then the computer will obviously will have kicked in to replace a lot of the administration staff, but you can't replace the the stockman with anything but but a stockman. And your 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 cowboys would still be on horseback, riding through the, through the pens, uh, uh, look checking the cows every, every day.
2: They will be, yes, and that's that's a hard position to find. That is that's something that's changing drastically. Is finding that uh, that group that. Uh, has that ability to have that stockman and and so we train a lot too we do a lot of training we have uh, not only safety meetings but we we train with a lot of different companies uh, they will send staff out here and uh, explain different protocols different handling methods uh, we've had some uh, demonstrations with some animal handlers through our system we've had uh, about once a month, we have a meeting where everybody we feed them, and then we spend about an hour or two hours of of training every every month just okay. to keep people up to speed on what's coming down the pike or or what we should be doing different. So, sure, and everybody here, everybody here has to go through, including the girls in the office, and everybody has to be uh, beef quality assurance trained as far as how we're going to handle things. We also we also sell in our program cattle, we sell cattle and uh, we're in a sustainability type program that we've signed on. And uh, uh, that is that's an automatic checklist of what we do and why we do it. And we do that day in, day out, and that has to be recorded and it has to be audited uh, every quarter to make sure that we're in compliance for our sustainability uh, Aspects as far as it might be from greasing the truck to washing the truck to which loader gets used for what purpose to where you storing a chemical and, and make sure that there's no cross contamination. All these types of things are are, are continuously uh, coming along and we're going to keep addressing them as they come.
0: Sure, the new challenges that they are, and uh, and, and uh, nowadays these come into every industry, of course, but you guys would... would um, Let's look at some of those staff. I mean, you're, as well as the cowboys, you'd need vets and mill mm-hmm. operators and plumbers, electricians, mechanics, mm-hmm. well diggers. I mean, how do you resource all those guys uh, locally?
2: Well, we're very well situated. We have a very good well company uh, that's located in our community. Uh, we've got a... Uh, veterinarian staff that we employ to uh, come out and process the cattle vaccinate the cattle help us manage our sorting and our uh, drugs and make sure that uh, we're in a constant contact with those folks Uh, we've got plumbers Uh, we we try to employ some of our own welding that's been a challenge because it's easier so we've contracted some of that work but uh we still got some talented people that can make things happen. The uh, it is getting more challenging to to find the people in ag to, so we have to do a lot more training because we break our system down. On uh, the outside is is uh, cattle management, uh, pen maintenance, and uh, the feed mill, and uh, so the feeding has to. You know, they work in the nucleus, they all work in tandem together, but they, there's, there's responsibility all the way through those three systems and they have to work back and forth and communicate back and forth. But those are our three bases there. And then uh, the office management uh, works direct with the heads of all those uh, people that are responsible for those entities outside.
0: Sure, and if, if, the, if the mill breaks down and and nobody gets fed, then there's going to be a lot of noise going on there, surely.
2: Yeah, and, and we have to have backup systems for all that. You know, like I said, the computer will generate it, but we also have manual, and we have to be able to operate that as well and record that,
0: so… I hope the listeners are finding this as fascinating as I am hearing all about this feedlot. There's plenty more to talk uh, with Craig about, so we're going to break from this podcast and split it in two, and a further podcast will carry on with uh, the remainder of this episode. That's fine. That's fine. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast, which was kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers of quality commercial and pedigree feeds and expert nutritional advice. Visit their website or find them on Facebook for more information. And while on the subject of Facebook, why don't you visit the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page, where you'll find photographs and more information to back up this episode.